Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Writer's Way podcast. I'm your host, Justin DeMarco. You're listening to Episode 10, The Bookstore, with Mason Engel. Mason is a self-published author who will be releasing a short film to raise money for the Book Industry Charitable Foundation. The foundation is using 100% of the profits to help indie bookstores recover from the pandemic. Take a listen to the trailer, and then we'll jump right into the interview with Mason Engel. In the summer of 2019, I took a road trip to 50 independent bookstores in 50 days. But I wasn't buying books. For that, I used Amazon. I was selling books, promoting my self-published novel. My journey gained a following and attracted some press, but it did something unexpected, too. It called into question my Amazon allegiance. Though they didn't always offer the same ease, convenience, and cheapness of buying online, the 50 stores I visited offered something more valuable, something I'd been missing, something that, if your book browsing ends with the Buy Now button, you might be missing too. My name is Mason Engel, and my 50-day road trip left me with a very simple question. Why should people shop at an indie bookstore? On a second road trip, this one filled with hurricanes, hauntings, and weeks living out of my car with my cameraman, Dozens of booksellers told me what that missing something was. Okay, so Mason, you're releasing a short film to raise money for the book industry charitable fund, Bink. It's a story of your road trip to visit 50 indie bookstores in 50 days. Now, before we jump into the books tour, I want to learn a little bit more about the man behind the film. So you're a writer and a filmmaker from Columbus, Indiana, and you self-published your dystopian novel, 2084, on Amazon. So let's start there. Did you try to go the traditional publishing route before you decided to self-publish? Yeah, so we should probably rewind even a bit further from there because 2084 was the sixth novel that I'd written. Uh, I... It was exploring ways to get that published my senior year of uh, of college. But before that, the very first book I wrote, I had already gone through the querying process uh, and, of course, received forum rejections. Most people didn't even respond because, in hindsight, it was just a garbage book, as as the first normally is. Um, so I, I was familiar with the the path of traditional publishing. But this was when I was writing 2084, this was back in 2017 when uh, it, the, the Trump election had just happened and phrases like alternative facts were in vogue. Uh, so 1984 was trending. I thought I could ride that wave a little bit. And I had this idea for an atraditional publishing method where I was going to try to match uh, Andy Weir's story, the guy who wrote The Martian started releasing via his blog short chapters eventually turned it into an ebook it blew up on amazon and i forget who the publisher was but someone saw that and created it into uh converted it into a paperback enter matt damon and the rest is history so that was my plan for 2084 was to release it for free on amazon and then i was certain that some big publisher would see that and be like, wow, this is really great. Let's go get Matt Damon again and make this a huge hit. That didn't happen. So what 
ended up being the case was I just self-published on Amazon, learned a lot about digital marketing. Um, and when, when 2019 rolled around, sales had dipped off and I was looking for ways to, um, to promote in a different way. Now I have a, I have a question. I want to jump in there. So yeah. that 2084 was your sixth novel. It was. Okay. So now take me through how old were you when you wrote your first novel? The, the first novel actually comes with somewhat of a, a story. So <laughs> I played soccer all through high school, uh, pretty competitive, pretty high level. So when my senior year season ended in, I guess it would have been October sometime in the fall, I would come home from school and just have like five, six hours in the evenings. I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was very type A, very driven. So I needed to do something, had always loved writing uh, and decided to write a book just on a whim one day. And uh, for some reason, I decided to keep that writing secret. It just, it, it was a gut thing for me. I just felt that um, this shouldn't be something I should run around and, and tell people. A few weeks into the writing process, I got this idea that I was going to use the book uh, to ask my girlfriend at the time to prom, which was in May. So it was my task to finish the rough draft, go to a, the father of a friend who had a printing company, get it printed, dedicate the book to her, ask her to prom with the book, and then right off into the sunset. Pretty romantic. Yeah, well, I'd set the bar high for myself previous years. I did Christmas lights. I rode up on a horse. So it was, uh, I needed to. <laughs> Where did you get the horse? <laughs> she, she, she rode horses. She uh, showed horses. So you so stole her horse? <laughs> no, that would be arguably cooler, but I, I just <laughs> met up with people from her barn, learned to ride, decorated the the horse. I didn't paint any animal. <laughs> just about that. No animals were but, harmed. Uh, yeah, in the making of that prom yeah. ask. But the bottom line was I I'd set the bar high for myself. So dedicate writing and dedicating a book seemed like one of the few things I could do to kind of cap it off. So now why were you kind of I don't want to use the word shame, but I guess kind of ashamed to admit that you were writing. Is it because you were playing soccer and maybe writing isn't the most manly thing to do? Yeah, well, that uh, the gut instinct to keep the writing secret surely came from somewhere. And I'm not really sure. Um, maybe even then, like subconsciously, I had anticipated a use for the book, like the the prom thing. I didn't tell her about it the entire time because I wanted it to be a surprise. Maybe that was a part of it, but um, I, I'm sure the the masculinity issue was another part. I grew up in, in Southern Indiana, Columbus, like you said, um, and maybe I just felt the need to preserve that image. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. I'm not really sure. Well, that, I mean, the reason I asked too, I'm actually reading a book right now called to be a man and it's by robert augustus masters i hope i got his name uh correct but you can edit yeah no I'll, I'll leave that in um but i guess part of it was in my own story there was definitely shame with being an artist or being a creative where i felt that people who were artists or creatives were kind of like they had dyed hair like my sister was an artist she had dyed hair uh, she was, you know, very creative, very out there. And I felt like that wasn't me. I played baseball. I played hockey. I was on the fencing team, but 
let's uh we'll skip past that but (laughs) (laughs) fencing i think is the most masculine of all that's well and it was saber too the slashing one uh so i'll take that thanks mason um (laughs) but i think that's something that i've been realizing was there was a little bit of that almost shame even declaring yourself as an artist or a writer especially when Mm. i think we were kind of growing up too i'm 34 i think you're 26 right right yeah so it was a little bit different i think now things are a little bit more accepting because I remember I even had a teacher who asked me to audition for a play. And that was something that I was really scared to do um, because it'd be putting myself out there basically on stage. And I remember I talked to my baseball coach about it and I, you could definitely sense I was a little nervous. And he just goes, Justin, he goes, where are all the girls? He goes, the theater. <laughs> And that kind of helped me. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, I was like, my coach is on board. Like, cause I, I may had, you know, had to have skipped practice every now and again to be able to do the show. Um, but that teacher who asked me to participate, uh, ended up being a person that I wrote hockey, the musical with, which was mm-hmm. a story about the first openly gay male hockey player in a musical format. And after that, I really struggled, struggled with identity issues, um, because there are definitely people that are assuming, you know, if you wrote a story that, oh, this guy must be gay too. And it's a musical. Right. And I think what's interesting in this book, and there's a guy that I follow, uh, who's a friend too on Instagram, uh, he's a human connection specialist, Mark Groves. And he was talking about how sometimes you'll listen to things almost when you kind of want to hurt yourself, but you have to be aware of who is saying it. Right. So like if it's an egg on Twitter saying it, why are you letting that egg on Twitter get into your head? And I think knowing where the information or the source of the information is coming from is super important. And that's something that I've learned, but it was just something interesting that I guess I kind of wanted to figure out because you're 26 now for me, my sister talked about the 27 to 30 shift in my life, which was a big one because I was working a sales job. Um, and to rewind kind of like you, I wrote a book. It was a nonfiction book. Um, when I graduated from college, it was called the unemployed and the miserable, the unemployed and the miserable welcome to life after college. Hmm, What a title. Yeah. Right. And I had it, and this was right after 2008, right? So I graduated, Hmm. the economy crashed, the world basically seemed like it stopped. Uh, there certainly wasn't the idea of abundance. Um, that was a foreign concept. So I actually was able to get to a literary agency in New York city and they met with me. They loved the idea. I did the revisions that they asked and then they rejected me. And the note was, it doesn't have a happy ending. So now I didn't even think to try to go to another literary agency. I just thought that was the universe saying like, you're not cut out to do this, the end. So I stopped. So I went into sales. Um, but I realized now it was all of that other like shame. And are you really worthy? Are you a creative that kind of was in my mind and kind of got into it. Uh, so that's why I was curious to kind of hear the reason as to why maybe you didn't want to share that you were writing. Yeah. Well, there's, thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's, uh, a tough challenge to, to deal with. Well, Um, thank you. Uh, but it's funny too, because I think I experienced something similar growing up. I was in elementary school, always the kid who was like the the goofball lead in all the school plays. Um, so going into middle school, I thought I was going to do drama. 
seventh grade, I just walked in and I saw all these kind of out there creative personalities. And I'm like, I don't know if this is me. So I backed out eighth grade. I changed middle schools uh, and was convinced by someone to go audition for the fall uh, or the, the winter play, some like amalgamation of Shakespeare plays. And I got the parts, the, the big lead part where I was um, like three different starring roles for these Shakespeare plays. Uh, I, my lines were like the entire playbook. <laughs> so it was going to be a big commitment. I was also playing basketball that year and they were at the exact same time, the rehearsals and the practices. So I was like the B grade Zac Efron running between the rehearsals and, and basketball practice. And even then I remember feeling this like driving need to overcompensate. Like when I would run back to basketball practice, um, I knew I had missed some wind sprints or something. And I didn't want the guys thinking that I was um, like this soft kid just doing drama to, to get out of running. So I would, I would run the sprints on my own and throw in a few extra. So I think maybe my, my decision to keep the writing secret came from, from that. I was also raised by two mothers in uh, Southern Indiana, which probably planted um, that drive in me as well to prove to people like, hey, uh, I'm, I'm still like a guy. I'm one of the guys, whatever that means to people. Well, I have to ask right there too. I didn't know that, that you're raised by two mothers. Um, so growing up in, like you're saying, Southern Indiana, what was that experience like for you? You would think it would have been difficult, uh, but I think the difficulty came from my my own thoughts. It came internally. Externally, no one, not one time my entire childhood did anyone say a negative word about my parents. I didn't hear whisperings. No one said it to my face. Like in hindsight, that's incredible. We all know how cruel kids can be. And I had this huge target painted on my forehead and nobody took aim. So it, it was very lucky in that way, but I'm sure I, I buried some things uh, along that path. And are you a sensitive type of guy? Because I know growing up, I was always super sensitive and I kind of had to toughen up, use the word soft. And I think that's something that men are kind of taught and, or well, I should say boys are kind of taught as they evolve into men, which is you don't want to be soft. Um, I remember I got tendonitis from just overuse from playing baseball. And I told my coach in like sixth grade, I was pitching and they had, you know, limits on how many innings you could pitch. And I think I went over the, the innings limit and I told the coach that my arm was hurting. And I remember in front of the catcher, cause we had a meeting on the mound and he said, don't be a wussy, but with a P uh, and I kept playing and it ended up really hurting me and changing the way I played baseball because then I started throwing with my shoulder because I was in physical therapy for my elbow. Uh, so it kind of affected me in the long term, And it's something that's, I think, pretty interesting in the sense of, you know, what it means to be male or be a man. Uh, sure. and that, that coach, I'm sure that's what he was taught. Um, you know, when you look back, it's like, it's sixth grade, little league, dude, like, come on. But <laughs> yeah. for him, he probably wanted to be the man. He wanted to beat the other team. Uh, and I remember, I think, uh, I was his first draft pick, uh, the way it worked out. So he had his son. So mm -hmm. the next person he picked after that was me. So I guess there was a lot of pressure for him. I'm not really sure, but it's, 
it's things like that, that add up over time that stick with you. And I think being open and vulnerable and even just willing to do the work now, uh, to figure out for me, why, you know, where's this wiring coming from? Um, because if you don't know, then it could just lead you. I would say that I'm someone who's probably, or was very reactive. So now I meditate more in the morning and I find that that really helps me be less reactive. Um, so is there anything that you kind of do just for yourself, uh, in that regard? Yeah, I, this has been my, my central focus for like the last several months actually. And, and it all revolves around identity and identifying, um, certain tendencies and traits and tracing those things back to the wiring, uh, as you call it. And I, I think just awareness of those things is a big first step. So just uh, by virtue of introspecting, I think I've gained a little bit more uh, autonomy over my own actions. I'm not always influenced by some <laughs> something that happened 10 years ago that I should learn to let go. Meditation has been big for me. Uh, I use the Calm app um, just so it's it's nice and simple. It's easy to to keep a habit. Other than that, like this is this is what I'm turning to next. Uh, I've been super busy with uh, documentary promotion. Just got a new job, so things have been pretty hectic. Um, but next, uh, I'll be focusing on myself in that particular way a lot more. Well, I want to do a huge say a huge congratulations to you and the fact that you're willing to do this and that you're doing it at 26, I think is pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, you are about to go into that 27 to 30 shift. So, <laughs> yeah. so I didn't fun. know that was a thing, but now uh, I'm well, it was something my sister told me. Um, and I guess, you know, she's four years older, so she experienced it. And I guess she kind of saw it cause I was definitely frustrated, you know, frustrated creative because I was working in sales and, I knew that I needed to be writing. And it, I think one of the biggest things is it doesn't go away. You can't get rid of it. It's going to come back. If there's creativity in you, it wants to get out some way, somehow. Yeah. So no, it, it does even. And like you said, um, your story about the agent really stuck out to me because in the same way that uh, our creativity is very resilient and refuses to be stifled, it's also very fragile and can be wounded and put out commission for quite some time. Um, it, and I think it's, it, that's the sensitivity in, in we creatives and us creatives. Um, so I, for me, it's been learning the balance of continuing to be sensitive in that way, but also, um, more, more resolved in my belief that what I have is, is worth having and worth sharing. Absolutely. And I love that. That's so beautiful. Say that one more time, because that's like a great affirmation every day to wake up with. <laughs> you might have to play it back because I don't know if I can repeat it. Um, <laughs> Come on, Mason. <laughs> well, just um, reminding myself that what what I have is is worth having and, and worth sharing, despite how fragile it can be, finding that balance between the fragility and the, the creative strength, uh, I think is is the challenge we're all met with. That's beautiful. And then I think when I was doing research on you, I saw that you actually went to literary agencies in New York trying to pitch your book, kind of like I imagine Taylor Swift going in with her record in Nashville. <laughs> was it yeah. similar to that? It was very similar to that, except I'm not Taylor Swift <laughs> and Taylor Swift is. So her plan worked, 
mine <laughs> definitely did not. It's it's one of those things that you look back on and it seems so obvious now that you should not have done. I was a Google away from realizing all literary agents would hate this. So my plan was, uh, this was uh, the summer of 2017, a few months after I published the book. So I had physical copies, I had a cover design and all that. I found all the agents, pretty much every agent, big agent you'll find is based in Manhattan or they have an address there. So I had my spreadsheet. I had several copies of my book, wrapped it up in uh, white printer paper with a title on the front. And the the goofiest thing is I glued um, one a day contact lenses to the front <laughs> of the package because my book was about a company that sells smart contacts. Uh, and I would walk into the office, I evaded some bell bellmen and security <laughs> guards and got up elevators and would hand deliver the queries, mostly to assistants, because little did I know agents, though they have an address in the city, are normally based in Brooklyn or Jersey City or Hoboken or somewhere just less expensive. Um, but yeah, that was my my crusade to get 2084 published the traditional route. I give you credit for believing in yourself and doing that. And I know that you said like, that's, you know, the way that it probably shouldn't be done that way. But on the other hand, I think there's so much, especially when it comes to writing in terms of do this, don't do that. And going back to what is the source of that information? So you said that you're not Taylor Swift, but you don't know that could have been your moment. Maybe you would have met an agent that day. Right. And yeah, it's it's so it's so hard because you're you're told to stand out and you're also given this long list of best practices. And if you try to stand out in the wrong way, you're shamed and punished. But if you follow all the directions, you're told, well, you're just gonna disappear into the slush pile. You have to do something to stand out. And it's like you can't win. Well, the contacts I th idea was so clever. Clever, a little bit creepy. I got some, <laughs> some weird looks on that, but I think overall it played pretty well. And the thing that I've learned is I, I've written novels and I've gone rejected and it's difficult. It's tough. Uh, and it's something though, that I've realized that I think the more I've matured as a writer and as a person, the better my experience has been in terms of not getting form rejections getting responses from agents saying, thank you for reaching out. Uh, while this isn't a fit for me, the writing was strong and messages of that sort. And for a writer, that means the world that somebody actually oh, yeah. took the time to read it. And I've, yeah. I've been fortunate enough to have meetings with a couple of agents still don't have an agent, wasn't able to get any novels published, but it's something where they're on your side. They want writers to succeed and they want to help you and they want to make money too. So right. it's one of those things that I think I still subscribe to writer's digest. I get poets and writers and you see these articles about how to write the perfect query and how to contact agents. And I think the truth is the manuscript really has to be strong and great. And my question for you is with your novels that weren't published the traditional route, do you think that they were strong enough to be published the traditional route? Short answer is no. The The first novel that I queried for is as first novels are, just 
not very good. Um, I think books two through five for me, I didn't even query for those. They were just kind of practice for me. Um, I, I think my confidence was still wounded from the first rejection. So I probably in my head, I told myself, okay, I'm going to get so good that the next time that I query, everyone's going to say yes. And when, when everyone did not say yes, when I queried for 2084, that was again, kind of a, a crushing defeat. Um, it, it, I think a lot about why, so that by the time I was 22, I'd written almost a million words of fiction, tons of short stories, several novels, and I still didn't feel like I was good enough. Um, and I'm sure that has to do a little bit with imposter syndrome and all the, the normal creative woes. But another thing, um, a piece of advice that I don't think writers receive often enough is that just writing won't make you a better writer. It will to a point, but you'll hit a plateau when you'll internalize bad habits and um, it, you, you just can't get any better that route. There's a, a great book, it's called Peak, The Secret uh, or The New Science of Expertise, something along those lines. It's from the guy who came up with the idea of deliberate practice and the 10,000 hour rule. But there are two studies that I always go back to. One is uh, measure the competence, patient outcomes of doctors who've been in practice for five years compared to doctors who've been practicing for 25 years. And there was virtually no difference. You would, were tempted and were told in our world that experience implies there's a direct correlation between experience and expertise, but that's not true. Even if you write 2 million, 5 million words of fiction, if you're not pushing yourself and doing certain things to improve your craft, you're just going to stay at the same level. So um, for me, in in kind of sorting through this long list of, of best practices, just keep writing, just keep writing, you have to take that with a grain of salt as well, because it's not just going to fall in your lap, or at least that's what I tell myself. I'm doing things to try and intentionally improve the craft so I can stand out one day and I can be <laughs> Taylor Swift in the, the writing world. A hundred percent. And what you said is so spot on because even on my own end, I realized that I kind of hit a point where the writing was strong, but something was off with the storytelling or something like that, because the responses were basically like, Hey, like, I wish I could take this book on, but it's just kind of not there, you know? So it's like, yeah. okay, like I'm in the game. Like they're not saying like, I can't write, but I just, I'm missing a special ingredient or something. So right. I actually, since I'm in New York city, I applied to a writing workshop at the 92Y with a novelist, uh, Matthew Thomas, who I really enjoyed his debut novel and I got rejected. And then that was rough. That was brutal because it's like, okay, I'm trying to take a writing workshop and I guess my sample writing wasn't good enough to get in that. <laughs> so then I got an email and he was, you know, hosting another writing workshop and I actually got in this time and in the four week workshop, it was just a wealth of information. And for somebody at the highest level, he just wanted to give back and he wanted to help other writers. And it was good to have other writers in the workshop too, where you're supporting each other, but you also want to help each other improve. And there was that good chemistry 
because sometimes with writers, it's almost like they aim that whatever issues they have, or if they're stuck, they want to project that onto you. Uh, so if you're able to find the right group, I think that's very, very important, but being able to take that writing workshop and his big thing was that if there was an issue, he would tell you, you know, like if it was something where I think it's difficult with a lot of writing with agents and things like that, because one agent will say X and the next agent will say Y, right. But good writing is good writing. So he was able to kind of cut through the bullshit and be able to say like, Hey, did you realize that you were switching point of view and you never took us back out? Mm. I was like, no, I didn't. That's good to know. <laughs> so things like that, that you need somebody to kind of look over somebody who has studied with some of the greatest writers on earth and who has dedicated his life to teaching uh, and writing. So mm. I, I think there definitely is a lot of truth to that and even going to literary events. So this will bring us back to the books tour, uh, which is why you were on here. But that was one. We're getting there slowly. Yeah, we're getting there 100%. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, we have to get to know you first. We have to get to know Mason the man. I appreciate that. So one of the things that I like to do, uh, and talking about the wounding, uh, The Artist Way by Julia Cameron is one of my mm. favorite books. It's something that I've gone to and gone back to over and over and over again. And obviously... The name of this podcast is a little hat tip to that. Right. Um, but one of the big things in the artist way is to go on artist dates. Mm -hmm. And some of my favorite artist dates were going to Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. Uh, yes. And I know that you interviewed Emma Straub, the mm -hmm. owner. So I was able to see Colson Whitehead, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, yeah. talk, speak, and you're able to get into the room with him. Like, could you imagine going back to Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. That would be the equivalent of Taylor Swift doing a concert for like a hundred people. You have somebody yeah. at the top of his or her game, but that's all the time you have access to that in the literary community at these bookstores, which is so so special. So I'm kind of curious about your experience with visiting 50 independent bookstores in 50 days and kind of what you learned and what you found. Yeah, well, so this, first off, it, it is a little confusing. My, I took two road trips. The first one was the the 50 bookstores in 50 days. That was in 2019. Uh, the most recent trip per COVID, 50 days on the road would have been a little bit difficult. I was trying to feed my camera guy uh, occasionally. So we that was much shorter, 17 days, 28 bookstores. And uh, I want to get back into that too with your camera guy. So is that a friend of yours? Uh, how did he get into the equation? He was an intern through Purdue, my alma mater. Uh, I had two camera people set up for the trip in January of 2020 uh, and a, like a 30, 35 day trip along a, a longer route through the, the East Coast, South, everywhere. Um, and then March rolls around, throws everything uh, out the window. Both of my camera people backed out and bookstores were backing out. I thought this was going to be the end of the trip. And the, I talked to several people, several like mentors whom I respect. And they're like, yeah, I, you should probably just wait. It really? A wise thing to do right now. It'll be so much harder. I have this thing where I make everything a little bit harder than it needs to be. 
And I think they were trying to guard me against that. But I was thinking about the the mission of the film. The mission was to raise money for the book industry charitable foundation. Um, and thinking about how COVID would impact the bookstores along with uh, all small local businesses, it seemed like this was the exact time to make the film. So it was then when I started scaling things back, figuring out the minimum that we could do to, to complete the project. Um, so I found the new camera guy is very enthusiastic, very excited, which you need to do a grueling project like this. And what's his name? Give him a shout out. Come on. Braden, Braden Williams. Nice. Okay. <laughs> which is, which is so on character for me not to call him by name. I would <laughs> go to bookstores and introduce him as the camera guy. And so Dude, that's not cool. Hey, hold on, hold on. We we would have the A cam like next to me, and then Braden would be holding the uh, the B cam, kind of a human slider, rocking back and forth to give us some some motion. So my goal was to make the bookseller think it was just us talking because we had lights. It was a little intimidating. A lot of these people hadn't been interviewed before, so I would say um, it's just a conversation. You could ignore my camera guy. He's invisible. <laughs> so he got used to No, being... no. We're going to we're going to stop know. that right there. Go, moving forward, <laughs> he's not invisible. Braden Williams, no. correct? Is that the name? Braden Williams. You should you should title the episode uh, <laughs> by by his name. Yeah. He deserves more credit. The bookstore with Braden Williams. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Okay. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure that he got a he got a little shout out because I saw <laughs> Thank you. in the trailer in a clip that he was with you every step of the way because that was yeah, something man. where I think you do need a partner in crime in this type of endeavor and the fact that you were able to find somebody I was kind of curious because whenever you're doing a creative project, right? There's obviously a ton of time and research. So, you needed to reach out to every single bookseller to find out if they would still be up for interviews. You had to schedule the car rides for your road trip. You have to make sure that all your gear is working. Your batteries are charged when you go in for the interviews. So you have to be able to shut down for the night. And then you have to be able to eat at the end of the day. And I'm sure Braden either got a course credit through Purdue or he got paid. I'm not really sure what the breakdown was, but with creative projects, it's it's very difficult. And I think this ties into the money aspect and the money angle with Amazon versus independent bookstores and booksellers. Because I kind of have a theory, whenever I go to bookstores or you hear writers talk, a lot of times it's like money is evil. Money is bad. And I don't know if that's a message that I'm projecting, but it kind of seems like, and I'm sure you've heard this too, like you don't write novels to make money, which is such a crazy thing because you have people writing movies, making so much money. So if writing is writing, even if you're a copywriter, you can make so much money. So why is it with the novel that there's no money in novels? It's a billion. The books industry is a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. So in the in terms of the concept of abundance and being a lot out there, uh, do you have a theory on that? Is my theory completely wrong? I I don't think you're projecting entirely. I think that sentiment exists in the in the book world, specifically within um, any bookstores, it probably goes back to the romanticization of certain art forms. Many people, I think, would say that um, writing prose, writing novels is a, a higher form of art than writing for the screen. And I guess to, um, to prove that to themselves, 
those artists, those writers need to shun all material benefits. And that's um, like through that self-deprivation, they're, they're proving to themselves that, hey, I'm a, I'm a real artist, which is totally backwards. I, I am a huge um, Julia Cameron fan as well. And she, she talks about that, not like demonizing money and recognizing that that's an important part. And then there's, it, it's, this is so much uh, like a game of, of balance for me because the other side is you certainly can't write only for the money. One, because that's a very poor financial idea in general. Um, and two, because that'll warp how you approach the craft. Um, I think paradoxically, you're, you'll probably make a lot more money if you just write what you love, which is a very frustrating thing to hear and, and to say. Um, but it, I think it's just one of those axioms of art that you have to accept. It's like when people say to you, just be you and you're trying to figure out who am I? <laughs> right. It's not that easy. If I knew who I was, then yes, I could be me, but I'm working on that and I'm developing yeah. that and I'm trying to figure that out. So I think that's something that makes a lot of sense. And thanks for speaking a little bit about that. Is someone you know completely overwhelmed with the personal statement and supplemental essay portion of the college application process? If so, Ivy and Quill College Admission Essay Consulting and Editing Services is the answer. Our team has reviewed over more than 20,000 essays since 2015, and our students are regularly accepted into the top 100 U.S. universities and colleges. For more information, visit us at ivyandquill.com. And don't forget to check out our free resources on our site's IQ blog section. You can also watch our informational videos on our Ivy and Quill YouTube channel to learn more about what we do. So what were your biggest takeaways from the bookstore? I'll give you two main takeaways. One ties back to what we were just talking about and is a, a little deeper. And the other is just something that I learned along the way and how bookstores work. So when you walk into Books or Magic, say, or, or any other bookstore, you look around and you see hundreds and thousands of books on the shelves. I personally didn't realize that each one of those books was chosen and purchased by someone in the bookstore. It's not like they just went to some magic website and dragged and dropped 10,000 books into their shop. They are curating based on their community, based on the times, based on what they've sold in the past. There's thought that goes into each one of the books. So it became a very humbling experience for me to walk into each new bookstore because I would look around with uh, increased appreciation for the books on the shelves, knowing that there's labor in that selection and in that curation. Um, and the second thing, again, goes back to not the uh, not the demonizing of money per se, but kind of the disregard of it. Most owners of any bookstores are very savvy business people because they have to in a uh, they have to be in uh, a slim margin business. They need to find revenue wherever they can. But at the same time, uh, I would ask this question at every bookstore: What to the bookseller? Why why do you sell books? You've been doing this for five, 10, 35 years. 
what keeps you coming back? And almost uh, without exception, they would say, well, it's certainly not to make a lot of money <laughs> because you that's just not the path being an indie bookseller. You're not going to become super rich. And the, the driving force of these people was the mission, was spreading the love of reading, was finding the, the perfect book for the next person who walks in the door. And I think it's because the booksellers themselves have been changed by book or changed by multiple books. Many of them have been um, inspired or their perspectives widened. They had been saved in some cases. And that, that sensation is powerful. Um, and I think they continue doing what they do in order to provide that to someone else. After having experienced it themselves, they know um, they know what that can do for a person and it keeps getting them out of bed and into the bookstore every day and, and selling books. And talking about books that have had an impact on the booksellers, what are five books that have made a profound impact on you? Mm. You, you gave me this question in advance. I prepped I, you. I, I mean, it seemed to flow naturally into the conversation. No, so I figured... it did. You, you, had to, you had to ask. And I prepared halfway. I was going to think of two more this morning. So I'm three, not... three is good enough. <laughs> well, no, we'll, we'll get to five. Okay, okay. Two, two I actually have sitting on my desk beside me all. Hold them up. One, and it might be hold the current title holder for my favorite nonfiction book, is called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall B. Rosenberg. And it's about uh, just a new way of speaking to people and, and receiving speech, not passing judgments. Um, the easiest way is to, to think of an example. Say we're roommates and you always leave your dishes in the sink, your dirty dishes in the sink. It might be tempting for me to say, oh, Justin really pisses me off he's a sloppy person who just leaves his dishes laying around. The nonviolent communication method would be saying, hey, Justin, I noticed last night and the past few nights, you've left some dishes that are dirty in the sink. I feel as though I, I feel annoyed because I want the apartment to be clean. Would you mind cleaning up those dishes or setting up a, a time? So it's um, observing what happened, expressing your feelings, and then making a request to the other person to, to change something. Sorry to go on that tangent. I just really love that book. It's, it's incredible. That's great. It's and thank you for explaining it. Because talking about, too, uh, I said earlier about being reactive, part of it is also if you feel like you're getting attacked uh, as a guy, too, right? We were talking about being soft. So what's a way that you would respond? You're going to be aggressive. You're not going to let somebody walk all over you. So if somebody says to you, you're a sloppy person, you feel the need immediately to protect yourself and say, I am not a sloppy person. Maybe work has been crazy. Maybe there are a bunch of reasons, but the way that you framed it, it also gives the person the opportunity to share. Maybe there's something going on in their life. Maybe there are family issues at home. So yeah. you're giving them an opportunity to one, explain and communicate with you and it may lead to deeper connection. So that's definitely a book I want to add to my own reading list. It's, it's powerful. I was nervous at first that it was just going to be uh, the author saying, don't use words like, oh, you're going to kill this or, or things like that, which may also be a, a good rule of thumb. But this was uh, a little bit deeper than just that. 
for the other books, another nonfiction, uh, Principles by Ray Dalio, just a, a very unique approach to, to business and life, delineating the principles that you uh, want to live by. For fiction, um, my the first ever science fiction novel that I read, which in hindsight set the bar far too high for all other science fiction novels, was Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Uh, won both the Hugo and the Nebula, uh, as did the sequel, which never happens. Just incredible, uh, an incredible book. And I think that's one of the things that made me want to write science fiction. Then, so that's three. My cop-out answer is Harry Potter. You can see my Harry Potter uh, set in the background. That's what that is. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it I went to great pains to to make my shrine over my bed. And then for the fifth. Hmm. Uh I, I will say this. So I, I've written a it's it's a novel that I've written, actually. So you're asking for books that have changed my life or had a had an impact. Had an impact, yeah. That's a good answer. And I, I wrote a a novel slash memoir based on my travels to various bookstores. So the the film that I made is, though I'm a character and though it tracks my transformation, um, is really a story about the bookstores and the booksellers. The novel memoir that I've written that I've written is a is my story. Um, why I took the trips, what I was running away from, what I discovered along the way. And that's definitely one of the books that you don't know the plot to before you begin. And I was discovering some of those things in um, in retrospect that I hadn't during the trip. So that was very, um, very important for me and very impactful. And what were you running away from? I was, I think I was running away from myself or my lack of a self. We were talking a lot about identity. Um, and if you stay still, for too long, if you're alone for too long, if you think about yourself for too long, as many people have done during the pandemic and in isolation, all of these hard questions start bubbling to the surface that many of us don't want to answer. We've gotten to a, a place in our lives where we're comfortable ignoring the hard questions and just being close enough. You know, it, if we aren't our true selves, we're somewhere in the neighborhood and and we can be okay with that. Um, but those questions started getting so loud for me. If I stayed in one place too long, it would just be deafening and I couldn't do anything but, but listen to them and be berated and shamed by them. So the first trip, uh, I was on the road every day, sleeping on a different couch every night, and I could keep those hard questions at bay. In between my first two, or in between my bookstore road trips, I stayed a, a summer in England with my cousin who had a, a house there, always traveling. So running was a, a theme for me. And in in writing about um, that experience, it allowed me to think more about well, what was I trying to leave behind. And writing, and writing as many novels as you have, you learn that you really do need to be alone and to be able to sit with yourself. Because if there are things in your mind, if there are distractions, there are so many distractions that can stop you from actually sitting down in the chair and writing. And that's the only way that 
a book, any book is going to get written uh, by us. I mean, there are people out there who have ghostwriters and things like that, but for us, <laughs> right. that's one of the big things. So if those negative thoughts keep coming back up, you can't escape them. And I'm glad that that's something that you were able to kind of face head on. And the reason I'm saying that is when I was 26, 27, I moved to LA and I did a cross country road trip because I always wanted to do it. And I think part of it too, is just seeing the United States and seeing how much bigger it is, I guess, than I kind of ever expected because growing up in New York, I kind of felt like that should be the capital of America. So, right. you know, New York should be the capital of the United States. And then when you see all of these other incredible states and just like salt of the earth, great people, like, I don't think I met one bad person when I did my road trip, seriously. Yeah. Um, and maybe that was kind of like, I was just so happy and kind of in flow myself at the time uh, that it was kind of a new chapter. I was starting something new. But for me, I felt like I needed to leave New York behind to kind of start fresh. And I ended up coming back to New York after a year. But it was one of those things that that road trip definitely gave me a fresh perspective on life and just having the solitude, being in the car only with your thoughts. There, there are points that you'll be driving and your radio is not going to work anymore. Like there'll be oh for sure, like a Catholic station talking, <laughs> like reading the scriptures and you're like, okay, so my options are like <laughs> silence, or... silence, like my CDs, but like half of them were scratched and weren't working. Um, and how much music can you listen to as well? So right. then it was silence and you have to sit with yourself and there's a lot that you can learn just being on the open road. Um, so yeah. what was, I guess, kind of your favorite thing about, you know, taking two road trips? Wait, it, I, this, this is probably will sound like a cop-out, but it was that. So that I was running from the answer or from the questions that I was asking myself sitting around at home. Um, but ironically, my method of running away resulted in even more silence and more time to think on the road. And there's something about the the movement of the car and the changing of the scenery that just fuels um, those thoughts. And I never really given myself that time. I think, especially in in Western culture, few people allow themselves that time because we're we're taught um, that we can do anything with hard work and to to just keep pushing and keep going. But there's, I think of this, uh, did you ever see Sahara, that old movie with uh, Matthew McConaughey and a couple other people? I have, I have not. Well, there's, there's this line that, that has always stuck with me. They make this um, like kind of wind sail rolling machine and they're going through the desert. And one of the characters calls out to McConaughey and asks, where are we going? And McConaughey says, I don't know, but we're making great time. <laughs> I love that. It's like that, like how ludicrous is that when applied to life? If all we do is just go and push harder and never take the time that we need to consider where we're going. And further, if we truly want to go where we're going, or if we just want the status that comes with it, or if we want the feeling that we think comes with it. Um, so in many times for me, the most productive thing that I can do is not pull an all nighter and write more words or, um, like plan a new road trip is to figure out 
what what to do next what is in alignment with with who i am because when you find that the path is going to be a lot easier instead of fighting through the wind on the wrong path well that's so beautiful to hear because i feel like i had been really going down that path where it's just work 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 do what you need to do it's a very western kind of philosophy and thought process that if you're not achieving your goals then it means you're not working hard enough which isn't true uh or that's goals yeah and that certainly it may be the case for some people it may not be but for me i kind of had an idea of what i wanted to do i had a plan and when the plan wasn't working out i felt like i just needed to work harder and so much of my identity was tied into being a writer and making money as a writer and when that wasn't happening then who are like exactly and my confidence was going down the tubes then COVID hit a musical that i co-wrote was about to have a concert reading and then obviously that had to get canceled because of COVID. so it was one of those things where i really needed to reevaluate what my plan was where i wanted to go what were my goals what do i want to be doing and i think i was improving going down the right track but i still wasn't there and then i got the concussion that i told you about and when you can't look at a screen when you can't even think about more than one thing at once it really puts things in perspective in the sense of what's important to you, right? Who do you want to talk to? Because I didn't have enough energy for phone conversations with people. So I'm prioritizing the people that I want to speak with, that I want to spend time with. And there are people that I haven't gone back to who wished me like a happy birthday in March. And I'm sorry about that. And I need to get back to them, but (laughs) this is a process. But I think the biggest takeaway was kind of, like that guy, Mark Grove says, the human connection specialist that the universe has a way of kind of like hitting you with a cosmic two by four to the head. And for me, it was was very literal. Yeah, it was a literal hitting my head. So that was something that, yeah, I think there's a reason why we're on these on this journey or on this path, right? Even you reaching out to me at the time that you did, you wrote such a nice email, you didn't even ask to be on the show. You were just asking if I could mention in a show that you had the bookstore coming out. Mm-hmm. And there was something in that email that you have a light or something that just shines through. And we d- we didn't know each other before this call, right? And the things that we shared and were able to talk about, I think truly are magical. And something that I noticed in the bookstore was the word magic when people were talking about books and going into bookstores. And books are magic in Brooklyn is the embodiment of that. And that's my favorite bookstore. And I love going there and I love going to events there. So where can people find the bookstore? Tell us exactly how this will benefit Bink, what Bink Mm -hmm. does, uh, and also share your social media information because I'm sure people want to follow you in your career. Sure. Well, I I first want to piggyback on what you were saying about the the magic of books because i think that's the most important part of the film it's um and this is probably my fault as well and how i talk about the film sometimes in the the answer we're trying to get for why should people shop indie it can sound like uh, a persuasion piece or a five paragraph essay in favor of any bookstores 
And we do provide some logical reasons why it makes sense to shop independent. But the the driving force of the film is deeper than that. It the the driving force is the light in the eyes of booksellers when they're talking about the perfect book that they recommended or the passion in their voices, the tears in their eyes when they start talking about why they've been doing this for so many years. That's what the film is about. No matter what the structure looks like, we're, we're really getting to the heart of, of the magic of books. Um, so as for, for where people can find the film, the website is thebookstourfilm.com. Bookstore is B-O-O-K-S-T-O-U-R, like a tour of, of bookstores. Uh, and there you can read about the story, some of the things we've talked about, some we haven't touched on yet. Um, and you can pre-order the film either as a digital rental or as attendance to the virtual premiere uh, for $10 and $25 respectively. The cool thing is that 100% of that money goes to the Book Industry Charitable Foundation. Bink for short. Bink, they're the, the superheroes of the book world. When uh, a bookseller falls on hard times, be it an unexpected medical expense, natural disaster, or something like that, Bink is who they turn to. And as we mentioned before, the independent bookselling is a slim margin business. So if one of those emergencies comes up, many of these people don't have a cushion financially to fall back on. They're immediately backed into the wall. So um, Bink, Bink helps with that. And during the pandemic, they have been the industry's safety net. There are dozens of bookstores around the country that are operating today solely because Bink has provided help. But the industry isn't quite out of the woods because though though things around the country have begun to, to open up more widely, the stores are still struggling. This goes for local businesses uh, of all kinds as well, but especially in bookstores. And Bink, Bink is continuing to be uh, the safety net. So all the money we raise with the pre-orders from now until July 7th will go to the foundation. You'll not only get to, to learn about the magic of books, you'll get to support that magic with the foundation. And what date is the premiere on? We don't have a date yet. Oh, okay. It's it's, it's mid July. Okay. I, I I don't want to commit quite yet to a date because we're uh, we're still cranking it out. But yeah, mid July is when people will be able to redeem their digital rentals and come to the the virtual premiere and do a little um, Q and A with me afterward. Okay. And where can people follow you, Mason? You can find me on Instagram. Um, the bookstore account that we have is just at bookstore daily. Um, we've been posting carousels of, uh, the various bookstores we've gone to. We have some other cool stuff coming down the line for that. Um, and my personal account is the Mason Engel, T H E A M A S O N E N G E L. Okay. Excellent. And you also have, uh, some things to help writers with burnout. I saw, so maybe that will be another episode. Uh, but Mason, thank yeah, you so we much. Talked about some of those things already. You're you're getting to the core of of what I've been working on. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, I mean, honestly, I looked through the PDF I signed up for last night. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, maybe that will be an episode in itself. Uh, but this has been for an sure. absolute pleasure. When uh, yeah, when we were emailing back and forth, I wasn't sure. You know, this is my first podcast back. 
Uh, so well, I'm, I'm honored that after you've been whittling down your commitments and things you think about and people you talk to, I'm, I'm honored that I made the list. So thank you for making time for me. Dude, honestly, it was my pleasure. Um, there was something about you and just the way that you reached out, uh, and the light and what you're trying to do. I, you know, I understand, uh, kind of from a mindset as well, where you're kind of a marketing genius too, because you're a writer you just met so many booksellers. I'm sure your next book that you write, you could go straight to them, which is brilliant. But the thing is you're providing value for them, which I think is beautiful that there is a symbiotic relationship. Not that right. things should ever be about reciprocity in the sense of I did this for you. You need to do this for me. Right. But I think that it's a very smart move. You obviously have a great head on your shoulders and you know, I wish you so much success and all the best. And I'm excited to see where your journey and your career goes. Thanks, man. And, and likewise, I, uh, I'm officially a listener of the podcast and, uh, I look forward to, to watching our respective journeys intertwine and go in their separate directions. It'll be fun. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Mason. And one more time, where can people find the bookstore? The bookstorefilm.com bookstore is B O O K S T O U R. And that will do it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Justin. It's great to talk. Thank you again to Mason Ingle for coming on the Writer's Way podcast. I'm excited to see where his journey goes and hope that you will check out his film, The Bookstore. When you pay to watch The Bookstore at thebookstorefilm.com, every cent goes straight to the Book Industry Charitable Foundation, also known as Bink. Bink provides financial assistance to booksellers suffering from medical emergencies, natural disasters, or any other unforeseen hardship, like a pandemic. To help, all you have to do is buy a ticket to watch the film. So please visit www.thebookstorefilm.com and make a donation to watch the film. Bookstore is spelled B-O-O-K-S-T-O-U-R. Once again, it's bookstorefilm.com. Please follow Mason, watch the bookstore, and leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. And to steal a line from financial expert and radio show host Rick Edelman, if you've enjoyed this podcast, share it with a friend. If you didn't, well, share it with an enemy. Until next time, I'm Justin DeMarco, and this has been another episode of the Writer's Way podcast. Give me a word and give me a sign, your moon. Show me the fire you have inside.